Welcome to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. What I had originally planned to be a short plot podcast episode about my favorite Russian wrestlers in honor of May Day turned into a full-blown, almost two-hour Winter Palace podcast episode talking about my second favorite wrestling angle of all time, the Eddie Gilbert, Bill Watts, Russian flag angle. And joining me on the show is noted Mid-South slash UWF superfan Greg Klein, host of Greg Klein's Old School Wrestling Podcast and author of The King in the Orleans, The Biography of the Junkyard Dog. We're going to talk about the genesis of the angle, starting with Bill Watts' use of Russians in the early 80s, before we get to the Eddie Gilbert, Corsita Korchenko angle, talking about Eddie being in Mid-South, how this leads up to... The Angle, the Crockett Cup, the involvement of the Koloffs. We're going to play a clip of the actual Angle itself right before we discuss it. That's about five minutes long. If you want to listen to it, if you don't, you can feel free to skip over it. We had originally planned to intersperse some other clips, but I could not get them to load properly. So I will probably include that YouTube file on the podcast notes for you people to go back and look at themselves. We also talk about some other random stuff, old school wrestling-wise, including Nick Bockwinkle as AWA World Champion. We also talk about life in the Mid-Atlantic, including Delaware Beaches. Shout out to Mike Simbrevivi. And why does everybody love coming to Delaware to shop? Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. This is a weird episode of the podcast because this is originally going to be an episode of the plot, and I had been struggling with something to come up with, and since it's dropping on May Day, I thought I would be clever and do some sort of Russian-themed episode, which isn't always necessarily the, the, the best thing to do in the current times, but you know, it's okay to talk about Russia in the past, just not current Russia. And I thought, well, how about we not talk about real Russians, we'll talk about wrestling Russians. And I was going to do something where I ranked, like, my five favorite uh, Russian wrestlers, you know, because there's certainly enough for you to do a top five, if not a top ten. You think about the Koloffs, the Koloff Associates, Nikolai Volkov, and then even when you get down to Boris Zukov and... Uh, Soldat Ustinov, the only Russian who had hair, I think. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to talk about uh, what we will be discussing today, which is my second all-time favorite angle in wrestling. And then I thought, well, cool, this is, so this is going to turn out to be a UWF Bill Watts episode. I know a bunch of people who are UWF fanboys, much like me, I wonder if I can get any of them on the phone on short notice. And luckily, I put in a call to our old friend Greg Klein of the Greg Klein's Old School Wrestling Talk podcast and assorted other projects. And luckily, he was free on short notice. So here's Greg, and we're going to talk about this angle. How you doing, Greg? Hey, Mark. How are you? I am good. We had been talking about maybe trying to do something uh 
soon, and I I hadn't really thought about a good angle, uh, like to maybe play off the stuff you had been talking about and about Houston wrestling or about sort of pre UWF uh, mid south stuff on your podcast, or we were going to talk baseball because you live in Cooperstown and I keep threatening to come up there to visit the hall one day and you know hang out. That that'll be coming soon eventually. But so we're going to do um, Mid-South instead. So I just happened, I like texted you while I was eating lunch and I was like, you don't happen to be free tonight, do you? Because I know uh, with your media commitments up there that you work on the weekends, but you're like, sure, I have time later tonight. So here we are. I feel like there's always time to talk about old school territory wrestling, right? Definitely. So what we're going to talk about is what I affectionately call the Russian flag angle. At one point, and this is now so long ago, this was before most people were doing podcasts, I had started a splinter podcast off the Odessa website, the Odessa Steps website, that was going to be doing a review of Mid-South TV, the thing that is all the rage on, it's kind of what, what you're doing with uh, old... Uh, with old Mid-South stuff, you're doing, um, sometimes you do TV reviews, and there are a couple of Mid-South uh, TV review podcasts out there, too. Yeah, I'm like the third or fourth Mid-South TV review podcast in the business, but that's that's not all we talk about. But as you know, that's my passion, and I know this angle is one of your favorites, so right. it's a great time to, great, great to talk about it. Right, so uh, back in 2011, I was going to do review Mid-South uh, TV episode by episode, and this was this was so long ago, there really wasn't streaming per se, but I don't know if you remember this, there was a thing called Justin TV, do you remember that? No. Okay. It was a, it was like a, a proto streaming site where you could get on. It was sort of like YouTube and Daily Motion, I guess. But there was a channel that streamed old wrestling, including. Okay. But so it was kind of like the Pedicino block. Like they streamed on weekends usually, and they would do an hour of Mid South, an hour of World Class, an hour of Memphis, stuff like that. And so I was like, well, hey, this this guy, whoever he is, is streaming this. Because, again, 2011, not a lot of content on YouTube. And probably what was on maybe have been getting struck down all the time. Because I don't even know if, if uh, the Watches were selling the UWA tapes or DVDs at that point. They may have been even before that. I think they had sold them right around then, yeah. Okay, so... Um, so I was going to do the thing where I watched this guy's t- you know, this guy streaming the Mid South TV, and I was going to do a review on it. And even though we were starting with 1984, you know, given my love of the Midnight Express, yeah, that right, uh, it was called "They Buried the Cowboy Under the Russian Flag" <laughs> and Russian Flag Burial. Dot blogspot.com. This will tell you how long ago it was. It was a blogspot website. I think that's how I first got to know you, though, was like you were a Russian flag bearer. Okay. Because that was also when I did... When I went to... 
the Mid-South Convention, they had the first time WrestleMania was in New Orleans. Okay. Um, and I guess that convention was at, I guess what was formerly St. Bernard's maybe, and is was is now some sort of convention center. It was it was out in the suburbs, but I think it was some place that Mid South used to run. Okay. Um, yeah, several different places, but I yeah I'd have to I'd have to go back and look it up. But anyway, so we did a special issue of the mag. We did a Russian flag burial themed issue of the magazine where Semper Vivi wrote something about his love of Mid-South, and Matt wrote an article about, of all people, Terry Taylor, before we... When you could write an article about how good a babyface Terry Taylor was, and it wasn't sort of looked at ironically, like, it was just about... <laughs> Terry Taylor was a good babyface in 1984. It's, you know... He's a great babyface in Mid-South. I mean, it's hard to convince anybody who saw him in the late 80s or early 90s, but... Yeah, no, he was he was perfect at the time. So yeah, so there was this convention there, and we did an issue of the magazine, and there were a bunch of old Mid South people there. And then the night before, um, Jim Ross had done um, his live show with Steve Austin at I think the House of Blues, maybe. Okay. It was someplace. It was funny because I ended up running into because I don't think he was a guest on the show. He may have just been there, but I ran into Coronet and Stacy there to give them a cut because they were at the convention the next day. Hmm. So you know we ch- chatted with them for a while. And anyway, so at this convention, Coronet was there, the Rock and Roll Express were there, the gang was there, uh, Shane Douglas was there, who I ended up sitting next to, and got to talk to him about all the nice things Steve Austin had said about him on his podcast, which he didn't even know about, which is fun. It was also funny that Shane was a very nice person to sit and talk to while he was there, given the fact that I'm not the world's biggest Shane Douglas fan, but he was a cool, a cool guy to talk to while we were sitting there. Right. And then they had a bunch of, and then they had panels and then they ran an independent show that night after the convention. But there was a, but they had a panel there, and I didn't get to go to it because I was manning my table. But I managed to like talk to oh, I forget the guy's name, the guy who was running it, because um, Watts was actually there on the panel. I think he was only there to do the panel. He like didn't have a table, but I like managed to like go up and like slip him a copy and say, you know, like I didn't have time to wait in line because I was at the table, and I was just like. You know, Mr. Watts, I just wanted to give you a copy. You know, I'm sure he didn't care. But, like, right. I was like, you know, you know, I came down from Delaware to set up at the show because of how much I loved Mid-South as a kid growing up. And, you know, we did this issue of my magazine about Mid-South. And I just, so I gave him a copy. But if you watch the, the tape of the panel, he kind of references it where he said, you know, like he was talking about like their legacy, and he's like, some guy, you know, someone came up to me today and talked about how much it meant to him and blah, blah. So I don't know if he meant me or not, but I am going to take that he meant me. Yeah. So that was cool, you know, and I think I gave Ross a copy when we went into the House of Blues thing and whatever. Cool. So anyway, so, so yeah, I was a – we may have talked about this the last time you were here, but it's like similar, like, you know – 
you were lucky enough to be going back and forth from Maryland and Houston during different times of the year, so you got to watch different wrestling, whereas I was here, had only read about Mid-South, and, and I had only started watching wrestling in, like, 1985. So, you know, I was reading, but, you know, I'm, I have an addictive personality, especially with pop culture, so... You know, I knew all of this stuff backwards, you know, a lot of this stuff backwards and forwards just from reading the magazines and getting back issues and everything. So then we were lucky that some, you know, suddenly in March or April, you know, and this is the game we play with Saper V when he's on. I think it was Channel 54. It was either Channel 54 or Channel 45 in Baltimore. One week, just all of a sudden, here's, the, here's Mid-South Wrestling as the UWF, which... I don't know we would have known about just reading the after magazines. And I remember calling my friend that I watch wrestling with, and I was like, I'm like, are you watching this? And he's like, what? I, so, like, I don't know, like, that may have been, like, when the AWA was on Channel 54, like, they may have replaced them. Right. And Or they were just on 45, and I'm like, are you watching this? And he's like, what? I'm like, Mid-South is on here, like, on Channel 45 or Channel 54, whichever it was. And he's like, are you kidding me? And I'm like, no, turn it on. And then we both like were watching it over the phone talking to each other. And that's such a brilliant first episode of the UWF TV show, which I think Mike and I may have talked about. But it's the episode where um, Watts hoodwinks Dick Slater into signing over the North American title and also gives away... Yeah, and, and gives the TV title to Buzz Sawyer, so... You know, Sl- you know, Slater starts the show as double champion and ends the show as no champion. But it's and it's such it's such a brilliant episode of TV for the first one to see, and which I had forgotten about until a couple years ago when I did an episode of Between the Sheets where we talked about the Crockett Cup. Then on the first episode of the Crockett Cup is or the first episode of UWF TV is when they announced the Crockett Cup. Like that weekend in March, whenever you know, like a month before the Crockett Cup in April. So it was, which, but like I may have known about the Crockett Cup coming already from watching Crockett TV here. But anyway, that's all the lead up to how much I love Mid South, and obviously people who listen to your podcast know how much you love old Mid, like pre UW. Not that you don't like the UWF, but you're definitely a pre-UWF Mid-South guy because you were watching it for years before that since you were in, in Houston. Well, it's funny because I did love UWF when it came on because I could get my Houston wrestling in Maryland, you know, much like you. Like, I think we first got it on home team sports. But, like, when I look back now, I look at the UWF as the end, and especially if you watch it all the way through, and then you watch the the Crockett UWF and the Burial at Starcade the next year, it makes me a little sad. You know what I mean? So when I go back and watch, and like on the podcast, we're only in, and on my podcast, we're only in 1982, as you know. Not even not even to where Korchenko comes in as uh, Vladimir Smirnov or whatever his his name is in 1982. Yeah, but um, uh, so I love the Mid-South stuff more than I think I love UWF. And Roman Gomez, who I think is a mutual friend, he keeps messaging me. I did another UWF podcast, and I'm like, 
that's great, Roman, but I, I can't do UWF. It makes me sad. But, you know, the beginning of it is brilliant. And as you know, the TV itself is really, really great and really high energy. And really, wouldn't you say it's where Jim Ross is finally coming into his own? Like, that's the Jim Ross that people think of when they think of Jim Ross at the beginning of his prime. And then, obviously, the WWF stuff much later. Yeah, because I'd have to watch more... Like I've, I haven't watched a lot of 85 stuff recently, but certainly in 84, he's definitely still learning. He's He's got the occasional, like, hyper burst, but he hasn't really perfected that sort of, uh, oh my god, you know, what's happened here kind of scream. You know, I don't want to say screaming because that makes it sound negative, but... You know, his projection, because, again, the UWF, much like a lot of the territory wrestling stuff, has now shifted from the Irish McNeil Boys Club in Shreveport, in studio, to taping, I think, mostly at the Tulsa Convention Center. Right. So right. he, so he's now, and they're, I mean, I, I don't know what was done in post versus what was done live to tape, but, you know, he and usually Michael Hayes, although occasionally Watts himself, and occasionally... DiBiase. Yeah, DiBiase, occasionally Joel still at that point. They're, they're, I mean, they're set up on a riser watching the action, and you can usually... Because a lot of times you'll see interaction when the guys are going to the ring. If it's somebody who's maybe in a feud, you can see... Michael Hayes yelling at DiBiase when he walks by, or vice versa. Right. And right. so, so like they're not ringside, and they're yeah. not they're not someplace nebulously in the back. They're like right. I guess kind of maybe analogous to where the Nitro set was, maybe where you're like within seeing distance, but not directly at ringside. Yeah. Well, you know, in '85, it's Jim and Joel Watts. And, you know, bless his heart, Joel Watts is not good at announcing, really. And Jim is just still sort of learning on the job. And they're not Boyd and Bill Watts, which is kind of the established team. But by 86, everything has changed, as you said. And then, you know, all of the big angles are Jim Ross bellowing it's breaking down here or we've got a pure sixer or we've got to go or you know they've buried the cowboy you know so um yeah i mean it's definitely a different era and i think jim ross is the voice of that era and again he's helped by having good color guys again you know occasionally joel for a while at the beginning well they uh, put joel in the, in the truck and right then, Michael Hayes and Ted DiBiase are both very, very good at that. And they're feuding with each other, so they're, they're getting their own storylines over. And, you know, um, I mean, occasionally maybe it was even Terry Taylor when he's booking for a little while. And then, yeah, it's just – it's so much better than I, – I, you know me. I mean, I like Boyd and Bill Watts or Boyd and, you know, some of the other color commentators that he would have with him. But, um, yeah, I just didn't think Joel and Jim was a great team. Right. So the, so the genesis of this angle, you could really say, like you said, 
uh, you're not probably supposed to remember that Korchenko had been there years before as the different Russian. But obviously, <laughs> well, and you know what? I mean, he was in San Antonio right before he comes into Mid-South. So people had probably seen him bleed over on TV as Korchenko for a little while anyway in a lot of those markets. But uh, obviously, people who have been watching Mid-South know that um, – Jingoistic 1980s Ronald Reagan loving Bill Watts has no time for the foreign menace. Whether it's whether it's Skandar Akbar and his oil money, or the evil Russians. One of my favorite things, uh, not from this era, but probably from a year or so before, uh, when you talk about creative uses of foreign objects, nothing to me is greater than Nikolai Volkov carrying around a bag of grain during, like, the grain crisis, which, you know, you'd have to explain to people in 2023 what exactly that was. But needless to say, you know, the Soviets, you know, were hoarding grain and blah, 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 blah. And so Nikolai Volkov is carrying around a giant bag of wheat or grain or whatever it is. And at one point they use it as a foreign object, I think, on Jim Duggan. But it's like, sure, anybody can use, you know, a lead pipe or a chair or whatever, but to, like, be so in your gimmick that you hit somebody. And, like, while it's heavy, I don't know how much – I'm sure it would hurt, but it's like, I don't know, you know, the – He laid out Dusty Rhodes with that bag uh, of – Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was Dusty. But it's a – I mean, you talk about Bill Watts loving the Russians. If you made your top ten list, they're all in Mid-South Wrestling within about a three- or four-year period, right? I mean, Nikolai and Ivan come in, then there's Nikolai Volkov, there's Crusher Khrushchev. I don't know where Korchenko is on the list, but, you know, Borzukov is there. Um, I'm sure we can, if we stretch ourselves, we can probably find an Alexei Smirnov squash match or something. But, yeah, yeah, yeah they're... I mean, obviously, I mean, the Russians are the number one foreign heel in the 1980s because it's like, you know, you still have your Middle Eastern villains, which, you know, he's got Akbar there on and off over the years. You know, little did I really understand until I started listening to Al Getz's podcast just how long Skandar Akbar has been in the region, and including the fact that he used to be a babyface, which... He was a good guy, yeah. You know, like, I think for a while, maybe under his real name for a while, since he was a local. I'm sure, yeah, when he started out. Because otherwise, people would be like, Skandar Akbar, you know, that's Jim Weba. I mean, kind of like how people reacted to Ricky Vaughn in Dallas, when it's like, we know that's Ricky Vaughn, he's not really a Von Eric. Right. He went to high school around here. We saw him play football. But, uh... Yeah, you know what? The, um, the thing about Bill Watts and his Russians, too. Um, oh, I lost my train of thought. What was I going to say? We can cut this in post. Yeah. But the, like you said, but we've had but we had Russians. We've had Middle Eastern guys. Um, I'm trying to think who else may have. I guess, well, Kamala's under the rubric of Akbar, so that kind of... And the Samoans, 
I don't know if this. I guess the Samoans are technically foreign heels, but not in this. They're not. They're foreign heels, but not political foreign heels. I guess. Yeah. If you make the you know, if you make or the and we haven't really had, like we've had Japanese heels, but not really. You know, like in the '80s, we start getting political Japanese heels in some places, but mainly they're still just sort of. You know, scary ninja types more than anything. Hendo Nagasaki, the Black Ninja. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, it's funny. I mean, there's an episode in 1982 where I've been reviewing now where Bill Watts starts the show with like a three-minute tirade against Russia because of his wife being Estonian. And it's like, it's just, it has nothing to do with the storyline at the time. It's just... The world according to Bill Watts and, you know, what what Brian Last and Mike Mills would call geopolitical Bill Watts. It's, you know, it's just they're the heel. And he just he just opened his wrestling show with a monologue about the Russians. And I think I'd have to research this, but I think Watts also did one of those when the Soviets shot down the Korean airliner. I'm sure. Yeah. I I think that may have given him like the opportunity to to rant. But anyway, so now we're in we're in 1986. We're at the we're at the end of Mid South Wrestling in the beginning of the UWF. And yeah, and, and comes in and is just dominating at first, and he's got Eddie Gilbert with him. Right, and Eddie Gilbert had been there for. A year, a, yeah. A year, he had been involved in a bunch of different things. He was, he managed the the Nightmare slash the Champion, then had him stolen by Sir Oliver Humperdinck. You had he'd the been a card guy. He'd been a manager. He'd gone become a good guy. He actually he teamed with my with my mentor Jerry Gray uh, against the Fantastics a lot in the summer of 1985. And then, yeah, he got cheated out of the nightmare by by uh, Humperdinck, and then he comes back at the beginning of the UWF era with um, Taurus Bulba and gets revenge. And also in there, you had the the Eddie Gilbert portrait angle, which oh yeah, with Porkchop Cash, that was fun. Which is it's like again, it's it's you know, and it's that era mid South where you have these pockets of Memphis. You know, you have these Memphis angles being done in the middle of of the UWF, whether it's Gilbert, or whether you know whether it's Gilbert's idea himself, whether it's Dundee's idea, yeah. you know, or whoever. But yeah, so Eddie starts managing Korchenko, and we're going along, and this is the, the amazing part about all of this is how quickly it actually uh, starts and stops when you look at how, it. How quickly it starts and how quickly it's over, for sure. So, uh, yeah, Korshenko is starting to win, uh, like, make his way up the card. And then in, in a, a wonderful bit of what I would call sort of meta text, uh, in addition to carrying the Russian flag, as all foreign menaces do, Eddie Gilbert is also carrying around a little red shovel. <laughs> which is a reference that will probably be lost on most people in 2023, but, you know, the Soviets used to, you know, um, uh, Khrushchev said, you know, we will bury you. And, you know, the little red shovel was tied into that. And Gilbert would even do the thing where 
like, after Korchenko pinned the guy, he would take out his shovel and pretend to throw dirt on the guy. Like he was burying him. Well, naturally, this all inflames uh, super patriot Bill Watts. So Bill Watts t- tells Eddie, like, enough with the flag. You know, I'm not going to have this in my company. I'm a red-blooded American. You're not going to bury people with the Russian flag on my TV show. I'm the president of this company, by darn it. And also around this time, I don't think yet, we also are going to have the debut of the Blade Runners. Yeah, it's right. It, he has them at this time because obviously he's uh, he. Well, go ahead. I don't want to spoil it. Right. So, um, so the Blade Runners are these two bi- big muscle-headed guys who had just come in from Memphis, where they were Rock and Flash, and now they're Rock and Sting. Sting is, of course, Sting. And Rock is Jim Helwig, your future Ultimate Warrior. And they start winning squashes on TV. And needless to say, they're not very good yet. Sting is much bigger than you you picture Sting as, even by the time he gets to WCW. This is this is definitely blown up Sting. And of course, you know Helwig is Helwig. And they're not very good, and they have very short matches. But so they're there. So they're, they're this part. So this point, Hot Stuff International is Korchenko and the Blade Runners. Like we haven't gotten. Um, Rick Steiner is in the company. He may or may not actually be Rick Steiner even at this point. It might be Rob Rack Steiner still. He's not. He's not quite. No, this is not like Hyatt and Hot Stuff International. That's what I, yeah, that was what I was getting to. Missy Hyatt and John Tatum and Jack Victory aren't here yet. Like the 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 Dallas the Dallas invasion hasn't happened yet. Thank God. So, um, so we get to this point where, and they've had they've had now a couple altercations on TV between and on house shows between Gilbert Korchenko and Watts. So we come to this TV taping at the end of May. Oh, we've also now had, we mentioned it before, we've now had the Crockett Cup. This is a weird false memory that I have sometimes that I think the Crockett Cup comes after this angle where it's actually the month before, which is funny because it makes sense that it would it would have built towards the Crockett Cup, but it doesn't. There, it's, it's happening just about a month after the Crockett Cup in April. So Eddie comes out, and we just mentioned Rick Steiner. Rick, St- the first match of this TV taping is Rick Steiner versus Perry Jackson. Eddie, go- we're going to. I'm going to insert. We uh, could not get this to work technologically, so I'm going to insert these clips uh, into the show. So, but I'm going to describe them anyway. So I'll describe them, and people can listen to them later. Eddie Gilbert. Thank you. You know, not very few minutes ago, I stood out here and I asked for something that I thought was kind of simple, and that was for Cowboy Bill Watts to please come out here, 
so I could talk to him, so I could apologize to him, not in front of just these people here, but everybody at home watching television. And Mr. Watts, if you're listening, please, please give me this opportunity, please give me this time to wipe out my slate of being associated with the Russians. There's the flag. If you come out here and let me tell you exactly what's on my mind and how you've made me see the light. If there's any way possible, all I want him to do is to come out here. And I promise I can't be any more sincere. I've done a lot of thinking about this. This is not something that just happened overnight. And I really need to talk to him about it. I'm not going to, I tell you what, I'm not going to leave this time until he comes out here because this has been bothering me. Thank you. Thank you, sir. You're really the man that I thought you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Cowboy Bill Watts. This is the man that made me see the light. Come on, I think he needs a, a round of applause. Sir, I know you really don't think about coming out here talking any more than anything else, but I really want you to know a lot of things happen in wrestling sometime that, that you just do for money. And that's exactly what I've done. I've associated myself with this just for money. And you woke me up and made me realize that I don't need this damn flag to do anything. And what I'd like to do to you, sir, if I don't, you can do whatever you want to with this flag. I'd like to give it to you and tell you. Let's burn it. Right now we'll burn it. I don't care. It's fine. I just want you to understand something. We may not agree on how I wrestle, how any of my boys wrestle, but I'm a true American. You can disassociate yourself from the Russians. I'm disassociating myself from the Russians. You'll never see me with the Russians again. I'll still be with the Blade Runners, though. I will still be with the Blade Runners. They are my team. They're the greatest tag team in the that's okay, boys. I'm just telling Mr. Watts that I have nothing more to do with the Russians. I don't want to see that flag anymore. You're right. I was wrong. You are a great man. And in the past few weeks, I've been very stupid and very foolish, and you're great. I can't believe this. I can't believe this. Well, it's about time. About time. He's a failure. Hold on. Hold on. That's a call-off. A call-off. A call-off. And they've got Watts down. Jago. They've got that chain. Oh, he sucked. The call off. He suckered him in. I can't believe it. Gilbert he got the shuttle. Gilbert hit Watts with a shuttle. Man, he's penetrated it. Boy, you know what? Man, that makes me, that makes me go to sleep better tonight. He had me fooled. I thought he was fell on that. The Russians are taking over on Watts. Gilbert sucked Watts in. Look, he's biting that head. The call off. They're choking him. hit him again. What a plant. That's almost as good as any bad street plant. They're whipping the cowboy with that chain. He's stopping him. He got out of his. He got out of his position. He should have known not to mess with wrestlers anymore. He's a president. Look what. What are they doing? He's showing that flag. He never intended. Uh oh. They're, they're putting the flag. Maybe Doc. They're fighting Duggan. There's a fight back here in there. But they put the flag on the cowboy. Look at that. Look at that. I can't believe it. Nothing's ever happened like this. The flag's over him, and he doesn't even know it. He's knocked out. The worst nightmare in his life. He's knocked out. Look at the fight going on. The Blade Runners are holding him up. 
Here comes Doc. Walk is playing the flag. Land on him. The rush is playing. The cameraman's been knocked around. They're holding them Duggan up. Duggan and Williams and Diviaggi trying to Here come in. A good right hand. They got... They wouldn't have got rid of us, but they still did the number. Look, he's down, he's down, and he's got that flag for a bit. They had the flag on him. They better bury him. They better put him away right here. I'll guarantee you. It looks to me like they did. If he's, if he's, if he is breathing, they better go ahead and finish it. They put that Russian flag on him. The fans are getting out of their seats. This is this place is mayhem. The watch, I love it. There you see young Eric watching the ring. Violence, look, violence. I love it. I sleep better at night. Everybody's concerned Watts has taken. They've hit him with a shovel in the face. They've hit him with a chain. they battered his face with a shovel. That's his son out there. Here, go, here comes Joe Watts. Joe Watts coming out of the truck. The director of the show. I don't know who's... Well, I guess I'd come out too if it was Michael. Michael, there you see Michael. Bill, Bill's three sons at his side. Well, I guess so. If I was laid out like that, I'd hope my sons would come out there. Well, this is one heck of a grave situation, ladies and gentlemen. He we, asked for it. We, well, oh, come on, Michael. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back. What a master plan. From the UWF. Sick. What a Eddie comes out, says, uh, and he's also very dressed down for because he has been in very gaudy, chic Eddie Gilbert uh, attire at this point. He's King of Memphis Eddie Gilbert attire, yeah. He's uh, he has been wearing um, not only his like hot stuff gear with the with the jacket, but. He's been wearing lots of Hawaiian. <laughs> this is funny because I actually like I think uh, for Halloween this year that in 1986 dressed as Eddie Gilbert wearing this ensemble <laughs> Hawaiian shirt. Uh, I think suspenders, uh, white pants, and what we used to call new wave sunglasses. I don't know if they actually had an official name, but it was the sunglasses where you had like one lens with a, tri with a big triangle yeah. over the side. People, I think, I think if I say new wave sunglasses, people know what I'm talking about, but that's usually what Eddie wore. This time Eddie comes out. He's wearing, he's wearing normal sunglasses. Although I think they might've been pink. He's wearing a pink polo and blue jeans. So he's not dressed up or anything. He comes out and he said, he's like, I want to talk to Bill Watts. I almost said, I'd like to talk to Tom because that's what this angle reminds me of and sort of its setup, the way it starts. So he comes out and he says, I want to talk to Bill Watts. Um, there's some stuff we need to talk about. But, so it's, Ross and Hayes are doing commentary. They're staying there for a while. Watts is apparently in the back or in the truck or something and doesn't come out. So they're like, Eddie, you got to leave because we got to get the TV show going. So he says, okay, but I'm coming back. Later in the card, he comes back out and he's got the flag now and the shovel. And he says, 
I really need to talk to to Bill, to the cowboy, and I made some mistakes, and I'm really not going to leave until you come out this time. Please, sir, come out. So Watts comes out. Gilbert says, I made a huge mistake being with these Russians. You were right. I was wrong. From after the, after this point, I'm not going to have anything to do with the Russians anymore. It's like, I'm still going to manage the Blade Runners are the greatest team in wrestling, blah, 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 blah. And Watson's like nodding and agreeing. The crowd's cheering him on. And he's like, I don't need this damn flag. And he may or may not have throw it down. And so, Watts is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then, they're like going to burn it. Yeah, he says, I'm going to give it to you. And Watts says, let's burn it. Meantime, as this is happening, and you also have to know the layout of the TV, which we see every week. As we said, the the wrestlers come out. I think they both come out. They may come out the same. They come the same way. They come from screen right to screen left towards the middle of the to the, down an aisle and then make a 90 degree turn to go to the ring and the announcers are on that riser right there at the 90 degree angle like I said so they can interact with guys as they come and go and this is how we see the setup for like a month so we this is normal so all of a sudden while this is going on the blade runners have come out and they're now standing in the aisle like at the 90 degree mark. And so they point out either Ross or and Watson notices him and, and Ross points points it out and he's like, what are they doing here? And he's like, no, no, no. He's like, I'm still going to match them. He's like, they're here just to make sure everything's going okay. Don't, he's like, Mr. Watts, they're not going to, you know, they're here. No, don't worry about it. And also, while this is all going on, Michael Hayes is burying Eddie Gilbert for caving in and apologizing, something he would never do. He's just like, I can't believe this. This, is, this isn't the Eddie Gilbert I know. What's he doing? You know, what kind of man is he? These kind of things. So as as so, this is all slowly building. Then all of a sudden, from the other side of the arena, not coming up the aisle, but coming into the ring. Almost through the crowd, yeah. Right. Is not only Korchenko, but Ivan and Nikita, who have not been associate. You know, obviously, we've now seen all these people, these people working together at the Crockett Cup last month. But presumably, your average UWF fan is not expecting to see Crockett guys in Mid South. Although, you. You might expect to see them coming in. You do not expect to see them doing a run-in. Right. Okay, so now, Watt starts, you know, fists of fire, blah, 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 blah. Uh, finally, he gets smothered by all, by all of them. They're, so now they're holding Watts. Ding gets into the ring. Yeah, Gilbert gets the little red shovel and whacks Bill Watts right in the head with it. Watts goes down, obviously, to do the blade job. So he's lying on the ground, and then they're gloating, and then they do the thing that the thing is that we the website and stuff is named after. <laughs> they, they you know they put the Russian flag 
on Bill Watt. And again, Korchenko had been burying people under the Russian flag, too, in addition to burying them with the dirt. So Gilbert, not Korchenko, not either of the callers, Gilbert is the one to put the flag on Bill Watts. Jim Ross is going apoplectic, as you might imagine. He's saying it like Bill Watts has been murdered. Like right. It's, I can't. As if Bill Watts has been murdered in the middle of the ring. I can't believe what they what what he's done. He's gone too far. They better kill. They. I think Ross says something to the effect of, "They better kill him, or this else." Is a proud man. They, yeah. <laughs> they and, kill and then, meanwhile, Michael Hayes is laughing his head off. He's like, "This is great. This is almost as good as a Bad Street Plan." Presumably, the highest praise Michael Hayes can give someone is saying that they're almost as smart as he is. And then everybody's having to fight their way through the Blade Runners to get to the ring to save Bill Watts. Right. Yeah, Doc and Duggan DiBiase. and DiBiase, probably Terry Taylor, are all, again, kids, in 2023, you may not know this, but it used to be baby faces ran to the ring to help each other. <laughs> you don't often see that in some of modern wrestling, but uh, it used to be the baby faces were all friends with each other, and even if they weren't connected at all, if one of them was in trouble, you ran out to save them because you're good guys, and that's what good guys do. So then, so he's bar- so finally they overwhelm the Blade Runners and they make it to the ring. The the Russians and Gilbert run. Watts is yeah, laying there like he's dead. First. Just- Right. So then we start. So then, like people start hitting the ring. All the the baby faces are there. First, we see future superstar Eric Watts. Eric show, with a K, and then Micah, and then Joel. Yes, Joel. All yeah. All the Watts boys. Right. Concerned. Yeah, Joel. Yeah, Joel leaves the TV truck. Micah shows up. I was probably like a teenager, I guess, at this point. Joel. Joe leaves exile and has been allowed back on the TV program. Right. Um, Ross is like, all his sons are out here. And Michael Hayes says, if somebody had done that to me, I certainly hope my sons would come out to check on me. <laughs> Things like that. So, so we have that. So that is the angle. And now we get to the aftermath. You get Bill Watts. Uh, first he cuts, well, up before this, we had uh, he he's cutting a, a he cuts a promo outside his house at 116 West Breckenridge, Bixby, Oklahoma, home of Mid South Sports that we all know. I always said if I ever actually went to Oklahoma, I would like drive all the way out to Bixby to see 116 West Breckenridge. Just like when we were in Dallas, I drove by the Sportatorium even even though it wasn't there anymore. And if I was in Louisiana, I would go by where the Irish McNeil Boys Club used to be. He said, I can't, you know, I'm a man, I'm embarrassed. You know, it's and it's like, I'm coming out of retirement again. Even though he has said, this is now, unfortunately, this is now the law of diminishing returns at its worst. Because this is now the third year in a row Bill Watts has come out of retirement in the summertime to get revenge after something happened to him. Well, what's funny is that the last stampede was a spring thing, and he just came back for like two weeks, right? So everybody loved that. In 80, 
85, though, he's back for the whole summer. And then in 86, he's back. I think it's the longest of the three, honestly, when we get to it. But we pull a 24 and switch villains like halfway through the, the storyline. So, yeah, he gets his promo. He says he's coming back. We see an interview where he's with Doc and they're training. he's training for his comeback. He actually is wearing a Last Stampede t-shirt. Which is a nice, which is a nice bit of continuity. Little touch, yeah. Um, so this time he's not back to wrestle; he's just back to gain revenge. Yeah, he says he's not gonna. Yeah, he's not coming back to wrestle; he's coming back to fight. Luckily, we have. Uh, I don't remember this being on YouTube the last time I looked for this stuff a couple years ago. I'd have to look at the date. We now have. TV from Houston, which you know, which you may have saw if you were there at the time, that we see some interviews building up the Houston show, because there it's not only is it the cowboy getting revenge on the Russians, it's a six-man street fight with Bill Watts, Doctor Death, and Dusty. So Dusty is coming in. The feud, you know, 86, he's not really feuding with the Russians, but it's Dusty and the Russians, so there's always a feud there. So you get a couple six-mans where it's Watts, Dusty, and Dr. Death versus Korchenko and the Koloffs. In Houston, it's a Texas Tornado street fight. And then the next night in the Superdome... It's the main event on a Superdome show, although apparently the Superdome show only drew 11,000 people. Yeah, so that is like the end of, that's, that's a, you know, the beginning of the end of the Superdome shows. They only ran it twice that year. And actually, if you look at their, when they go back again in the summertime for the Freebirds-Bill Watts feud, they do it as a spectacular at UNO Lakefront Arena. So... I think, you know, by this point, Tulsa and Oklahoma City are more the center of the territory than New Orleans anyway. But at least in 85, Duggan and DiBiase is still hot. And then, you know, to a lesser extent, Bill Watts coming out for the Stampedes Alive in 85. Um, you know, as, as we talked about on my podcast, Butch Reed and Ric Flair still draw a little bit. Jake Roberts and Humongous still draw a little bit in 85. But by 86, they're not drawing in the Superdome at all. Well, the interesting thing about these two shows... um, Let me pull this... I mean, they probably probably drew more in Houston on June 13th than they did in the Superdome on June 14th. And on June 13th, they just ran their regular building. Well, the interesting... Well, yeah, what's, in, what's interesting is that these are also not strictly UWF shows. We said Dusty's coming in, but Dusty does not come in by himself. Here's the card for at the Sam Houston Coliseum. One Man Gang versus Perry Jackson, Chavo versus Buzz, Link versus Victory, Magnum versus Baron Von Raschke, The Rockin' Express versus The Freebirds, an AWA title match, Bachwinkle versus Hansen with no contest, UWF 
title match, Terry Taylor or Terry Gordy versus Terry Taylor, and then the Texas Tornado Street fight. The next night in the Superdome, here's the card: Chava versus Rick Steiner, Brett Wayne versus the Gang, Robert Gibson versus Baron von Raschke, Coco versus Jack Victory, the Freebirds versus the Blade Runners, which is really weird. Yeah. The Missing Link versus Kamala. Because you got to remember, Missing Link is the babyface coming in. Badged by Dark Journey. Terry Taylor beats Buzz Sawyer in a TV title match. There's a tag team New Zealand boot camp match between the Fantastics and the Sheepherders. A singles match between Doc and DB, or, uh, DiBiase and Michael Hayes. An NWA title match, Flair versus Ricky Morton. And then the six-man street fight, Bill Watts, Dusty, and Doc versus the Russians. So that's that's a very augmented JCP card and a UWF card, and it still only draws 11,000. Right. But then people in the Warlands had also seen all the Crockett guys a month before at the Crockett Cup. So yeah. none of them had, had, hadn't really been gone that long. And the Crockett Cup didn't draw great, especially the morning or, you know, the early show. You want to know what's crazy, though? The Houston show. So I think the Houston show did okay, right? It probably did as much, like I said, as the Superdome show. But a week earlier, the WWF is at the Summit. So the Summit seats twice as much as the Sam Houston Coliseum. Here's the WWF show. Junkyard Dog is... A no-show, apparently, and Dory Funk wrestles a sub. It doesn't say who. Savage wrestles Tito Santana, and Ricky Steamboat wrestles Jake Roberts. You know how many people they put in the summit in 1986? You want to guess? Like 5,000? 1,888. So that's probably, if June 7th, that's probably what, like a Saturday? So Friday night, six nights later, they probably put six times as much into the Sam Houston Coliseum for that show that you talked about. Loaded up with Stan Hansen defending the AWA title in Houston against Nick Bockwinkle, with Magnum TA coming back, with Dusty. So that's crazy to think about. I can't find a New Orleans show from the WWF in that era. So it would be interesting to compare, but obviously, yeah, New Orleans is way down. It'd be interesting to hear what, if anything, if they took these matches to Tulsa and Oklahoma City. Let's see. Uh, see let me, I'm flipping back and forth between cage match and wrestling data. So, uh, so we've got. Let's see. The. Korchenko was fired the next week, right? I well, mean, so we have, uh, just on this page, uh, on June 10th, we have the Mid-South in Louisiana. It's Doc and DiBiase versus Korchenko and Rock. UWF in Alexandria the next night. Doc, Bill Watts, and Coco versus Eddie, Rock, and Korchenko in a street fight. Then the Houston match, then the Superdome match, then in Jackson, Bill Watts beats Korchenko. In Baton Rouge, it's Watts, Doc, and Coco versus Korchenko, 
and the Blade Runners. In Alexandria, I like to see double. I like to see proof of this. In Alexandria, it says Korchenko beats Watts. I find that hard to believe. I find that hard. I mean, maybe it's a DQ. Maybe they're leaving out the DQ. Could As be. I'll get to point out, maybe we're not getting the full result. But yeah. And then the next night, and then two days later in Galveston, Korchenko versus Doc, winner unknown. And then, at least according to wrestling data, we do not have a result for Korchenko until the next year in Central States. So, you know, right after that show in Galveston is when, you know, Watts fires him. We know that there's a TV because he gets hit on TV with the shovel, and that's what they end up saying runs him out of the territory. But I guess he doesn't have a match, so he's not listed you know, but that TV has to be that week, too. But then, for some reason, I have this vision that he goes to Dallas and that we're just not getting the matches recorded because I felt like on the TV they say that Lady Maxine drives Blade Runner Rock and Korchinko to Dallas. Like, am I imagining that? I they really tell us that on, on one of the, you know, UWF episode eight or nine or 12 or something that I do not recall. So I don't know. For some reason, I feel like they told us that everybody had left and turned tail and they saw them driving North on whatever interstate that is to Dallas with Lady Maxine driving the two, you know, people who couldn't cut it in the UWF. (coughs) Right. So then we get to TV in June and we're now down to yeah we're down to Eddie Gilbert and Sting being the only two members of Hot Stuff International left at this point. Watts has a TV match with Sting, which ends in a schmaz when the Freebirds hit the ring, and then the Freebirds beat up Bill Watts. So Bill Watts is beaten up for the second time on TV in a month. Watts Watts gets his revenge. I mean he gets the stampede. And gets the pin, but then Eddie Gilbert comes off the rope and misses. It's a little awkward, but he hits Sting instead, and Watts is going to get five minutes with Eddie Gilbert. But right as he starts to beat up Gilbert, then the Freebirds hit the ring, Sting comes back in, and it's like, yeah, it was very awkwardly transitioned. But like I said, it's like a, a an episode of 24, like my season of 24, where they killed off my bad guy too soon and switched to the Chinese. In this case, they, they just got rid of Korchenko and switched to the Freebirds. And this time, instead of being buried under the Confederate flag, um, Gordy, Gordy gives Watts the, the Oriental tool, the Asian spike, whatever you want to call it. So we get the infamous internal bleeding while Watts is lying there on the ring and Jim Ross is emoting and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's almost a carbon copy of the angle. Just, it's almost like he's moved. He moved from like this being a mid card feud, even though it wouldn't be a mid card feud because it's Watts. To now, it's the guys at the top of the card. It's now going to be with the UWF champion and these these guys who have been paid quote a million dollars to come in as free agents. Right, they're turning on him and being ungrateful for their million dollar contract. But it is weird because it's like they've done the same angle twice in six weeks with 
all, as you said, with Jim Ross emoting about it. And, and, you know, the guys that we were supposed to be angry at to see Bill Watts come out of retirement one time to not wrestle, but to fight, he's gone. We didn't even see the payoff against him, but Bill Watts still got a little payoff against the other guy. And, but now they've just transitioned to a summer of free birds. And if you go again, if you go by wrestling data, so we got to take this with a grain of salt. You know, the, this feud continues until August, which is the last recorded match that Watts has in their database, at least, is in Kansas City. So it's not even in, like, the UWF territory. It's Watts and Terry Taylor versus Gordy and Roberts. Although, oh, let's well, that, I, think that, I think that's, yeah, them taking a UWF. On the road, right? But oh wait, wait, um, wait! This is a, this is this is actually uh, in a different order, so I have this wrong. So it's so that was the fifth. Oh, it was August fifth in Kansas City. Then in Houston, two days later, it's the all three Freebirds versus Watts, Terry Taylor, and Chavo. Yeah, so, I was at that match. My dad took me to that match. So that's already kind of weird because it's like. Taylor is certainly, you know, I guess Chavo would be like upper mid card to be kind at that point. Oh, well, so here's what happened. Um, Taylor does the job in the match when the Freebirds cheat, and then Chavo wins the two ring battle royal at the end of the night because Chavo Guerrero is, is he might be upper mid card on UWF TV. But not in Houston. But, yeah. but not in Houston. So then... Uh, a couple of days later in Biloxi, it's the Freebirds beat uh, Watts, Taylor, and Teddy. Then in Jackson, Watts and DiBiase beat Hayes and Gordy in a street fight. And then his last listed match is a six-man on TV with no winner, which presumably means it's a we-gotta-go match. Oh, we gotta go, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the interesting thing is Watts does not really come out of this feud the winner, does he? They They feud on with DiBiase and feud on with Williams even after Bill Watts is sort of out of the feud and retired again. But but there's also a certain logic to that. If you have to balance, I guess, in Bill Watts' mind, you balance his ego versus logic, where it's one thing for him to come out of retirement you know, a team with Junkyard Dog to face the Midnight Express, even though they're tag team champions. But again, he's a couple years younger. That's okay. It's also still a tag match, even though, you know, he famously pulls his hamstring and, you know, can't work very much of the matches, and those guys just sell like he's Superman. You know, but, like, it's two years later, and it's it's one thing for him to beat up these mid-card guys, a fat Russian and a manager, but, like, him having to go, like, I can see the logic of him saying to himself, there's no harm in me as an old man getting beaten up by my heavyweight champion. If anything, it it puts Gordy over more if Gordy were to beat Watts, say, quote-unquote clean in a singles match or even in a tag match. Yeah, but they never really do that. They just kind of do the six-man routine as much as possible. Because that's what, that's what again, that's what Buddy Roberts is there for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, since I mean, Watts is the one who put Buddy Roberts with the Freebirds in the first place, anyway. 
you know, as their as their babysitter, not knowing that he's basically throwing kerosene on a fire. You know what's interesting is the the second Superdome show that they do that year does a little bit better, and that's with Steve Williams and Michael Hayes in a steel cage, and Terry Taylor and Buddy Roberts in a barbed wire cage at the you know quote unquote at the same time. Winner gets to help the other one. Um, so that does 13,000. And then it, it, the springtime 87 is just a, a disaster. It's like 3,000 fans. But that's, you know, that's, I think, right after the sale. Is Bubba there yet at that point? <laughs> Bubba is there in 87, right? Um, but that... I don't know. He's not there. He's not there on the April '87 show. He's there on the June '87 show against Barry Windham. We were talking about watching TV, you know, like sort of in the pre-internet uh, newsletter age. I remember the week watching UWF TV. Again, we had no idea about this sale. I remember watching the UWF TV that week, and all of a sudden. There's Big Bubba Rogers, and I'm like, what in the heck is going on here? Yeah, and, I th- and then he wins, you know, and then he wins. It's like, what the is going on here? To me, when they put the Lightning Express over as the tag team champs, and they put Bubba, who I saw as a mid carder, right or wrong, as the champion, and he, he wins that weird heel versus heel match. That's when I knew that. In my mind, somehow I knew Dusty had taken over. <laughs> you know what I mean? I didn't quite get it when Bill Watts disappeared and Commissioner John Ayers appeared. But um, when Bubba showed up and Brad Armstrong and Tim Horner started winning tag team championships, that's when I knew something was amiss. I just... Yeah. I was just... we. It's funny, we were talking about, like, the dying end of the UWF. I honestly... Earlier, when I was looking for clips, they had, like, the UWF TV opens. Yeah. I saw the UWF Crockett open. I have no memory of seeing that. I'm watching this, and I'm like, I do not remember this at all. Like, it has Vladimir Pietrov and Ivan Koloff in it and Kevin Sullivan, and I'm just like... And it has the same... It has the UWF music. That's the even... Like, they didn't even change the music. They kept the UWF Bill Watts Presents music, but it's now just like Dusty and all these Crockett guys, and then like a handful of UWF guys. It's just right. A little, I mean, it's, at least it's not, uh, you know, at least it's not the TV opening for the wrestling network or whatever. It's like I watched some of those when, like, I don't know if I had stopped watching at that point or that I just blotted it out of my memory. But like, whenever Mike posts those, I'm just like, I have no memory of this. It's like. Missy Hyatt as the host, and there's Magnum, and it's just like it's it's just so weird. Like your it your brain doesn't compute it. I block it out. I yeah. As soon as you said Missy and Magnum, I went. I, there part of me shivered, and I went, oh, what is this? This isn't my UWF. Where is Bill Watts? I know, and it's and it's funny because it's like I like Mid South. I like Jim Crockett. You would think, you know, in theory, putting them together should be good. But, you know, but, like, wrestling doesn't work that way. It really doesn't. I mean, I I was already, like, off the... I mean, 
it took me maybe like a few months of watching wrestling from like the very start of watching Crockett to suddenly like becoming a heel fan and not liking Dusty. Like it did not take me very long. But I mean, admittedly, I was always like a comic book villain, bad guy, and you know, like that. I was that way anyway. But it was just like it did not take me long to realize, you know, I'm not really a fan of this guy. Like his character, I mean, he's certainly doing a lot of good booking, certainly in '85 and '86. I may or may not have even known that at that point. But like, I was like already, I had already was done with like the TV character, the American Dream. And that's even before everybody's interviews centered around Dusty. You know, I guess it may have started even with the horse, uh, the proto horseman angle when they break his leg, and the, you know, like everything becomes about Dusty. I I think that was like my my first sign. And then of course, then he starts feuding with the Midnight Express, and I'm certainly not going to root for him in that feud. So yeah, I definitely was anti-Dusty, anti-Magnum. Anti-Nikita, anti-Dusty, that kind of thing. I think I rooted for Dusty against Lex Luger. Because I, I, we were at that Crockett Cup in Baltimore, and that was a very exciting match, I think, if I remember correctly. But, um, or no, that, that wasn't Crockett Cup, was it? That was Starcade, where Dusty beats Luger with the chair, where he DDTs him on the chair. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that's, that's everyone's favorite Starcade from Chicago. Oh, that was the Chicago one. Okay. Although I don't remember if Dusty and Luger were in Chicago or not. I mean, I don't remember. Edit. <laughs> we need an edit on this. Yeah. Well, again, again, when I when I plan when I do the, like the podcast off the top of my head, and I have not like done all of my reasons, it's just like I think this was. I don't remember. Like I said, I'm like. Bouncing back and forth between cage match and wrestling data, trying to look stuff up because I hadn't done it ahead of time. Well, I will say this part is true. We did go to the Crockett Cup in uh, Baltimore the year that it was there, and Dusty and uh, Dusty and Nikita won that year, right? Because right. Magnum comes out and it's all emotional. And uh, I won't even tell you what we were yelling at Magnum as he came out, but um, let's just say it was typical embarrassing heel boy fan stuff. And uh, we may or may not have gotten punched by a, a young girl who was a fan of Magnum at the time. Yeah, see, I, I did not, I did not get it. I only went to, I think, I only went to one Crockett show in Baltimore. That was beginning of '86. I think that's. Oh, yeah. I yeah, it's funny. I have not gone to that many shows at the Civic Center. Well, you and I are old enough to call it the Civic Center, whatever it's called now. I, think I believe it's the Royal Farms Arena now. Well, that would make a lot of sense. <laughs> so, yeah, we went. I went to one WWF show there in '85, and one NWA AWA Supercard show in '86. And I don't know if I ever saw. Oh no, we went. No, we went to. I take it back. We went to the house shows in. Nine is it the Christmas? It's Christmas week of either ninety or ninety-one. The year that Jushin Liger came in and wrestled Pillman Christmas week. Oh wow! We went because I came back from 
I feel like I saw him in the Battle Bowl. I feel like we saw him wasted in the Battle Bowl in Atlanta that year. Yeah, that's... I think Liger may have been in both Battle Bowls, or he may have only been in the first one. But, like, that show in Baltimore was actually... It was like Luger wrestled Steiner, and um, Pillman wrestled Liger. And it was like... There was a bunch of like actually good matches on the show. I mean, we only went to see we only went to see Liger because so it must have been '91 because I was getting tapes by then. Because yeah. I I came back because I had you know like started reading I think because I started reading The Observer in '91 because I was reading Dave's column in the National and. Then I started getting, because then I started getting the, I got started getting the Observer in like late '90, early '91, and then started getting tapes. You know, I discovered had discovered Liger and all the, you know, the classic All Japan, New Japan stuff that I had only like read about. So by the time we got to Christmas and we came back, and I called my friend that I used to watch wrestling with, and I was like, because by then I was sending him stuff too, and I was like. I'm like, we're going to have to go to this show in Baltimore. I'm like, Liger's going to be there. And he's like, oh, yeah, we got to Because he was always, he was, um, even in, like, the mid-'80s, what you would now call, like, a, a high-spot fan. Because, like, his two favorite wrestlers were Jimmy Snuka and Ricky Steamboat. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so, so it was really a great throw when I found out that they wrestled each other in Japan in, like, 1981, and we got that tape, and my friend's mind was blown. He's like... I was going real high spots. <laughs> I'm like, I've never... You know, because... I don't know, like, how long he had wrestled, but, like, at that point, I had never seen, like, Snuka be a heel. Yeah. Because it was before my time. And here he is in Japan. I think it's, I think it's like, 81. So not only is it like Jimmy Snuka as a heel in Japan, it was also weird because he was wearing boots. Oh, wow. Which I had never... That's kind of like that... I think I sent this to you. When I found that match on TV, on YouTube the other day, the Dutch Mantel was talking about on his podcast when he wrestled the Von Eriks in Houston. Yes, you did. I have to watch that match. Yeah, you said Kevin has boots. Kevin is from like 78. <laughs> so Kevin... It's, it's a really weird... If Talk about... And this is something you've talked about, and we'll segue, we'll talk about your podcast. This is something that Houston had, I wouldn't call them gimmick matches, but they, it seems like Houston had a lot of non-traditional matches, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, I mean, because Paul Bosch is doing whatever he wants, or and whoever's booking. But this was, so this was a six-man, a two-ring six-man, six-man match. But the rules were, and you can tell me if this is something they did in Houston, like, not not regularly, but occasionally. So it was a six-man match, but there were two matches going on at the same time in each ring. So there were two singles matches in each ring, and then the third guy on each team was standing in the corner in between rings so he could tag into either ring. Yeah, so it, it seems like the beginning of the year, I think, they had the two ring battle Royal as one of those traditions. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was the, like an end of the year thing, but in any event, they had that every year 
And so when they did, they'd have like all these sort of gimmick matches with the two rings. And that was a big one where they would have, you know, one match going on in one ring, one match going on in the other ring. Sometimes it was a six man. Sometimes, you know, like whoever won their match first could then help out in the other match. It seems like, um, you know, that was something that Gary Hart said about Paul Bosch is that he really liked his gimmicks. And and Hart actually wrestles in this match. It's it's this is this will tell you how old this match is. It's David, Kevin, and Fritz. Yeah. Versus Tim Brooks, Dutch, and Gary Hart. So Gary Hart's actually wrestling in this match, which is weird in and of itself. I think I don't remember. Hart may have hair in this match. But yeah, he does have a little hair in the seventies. Um, you know, it's hard to tell because like it, it's. The the Houston programs that I love so much are a little bit like the onion where they just use the same picture over and over and over and over. So they used like this old picture of Gary Hart and he definitely has a comb over, but you know, it's hard to tell. Is that a comb over from 1968 or is that a comb over from 1978? You know, it, I don't know. Well, I remember when we, when they started showing the world, um, I think they were called best of world class. Cause we got, we got world class on channel 43 out of York. And then they started also showing the best of world class show, which was like Mercer doing new wraparounds from stuff from a couple years ago. And then I started seeing like Gary Hart with hair. <laughs> like, right. when, like when he was managing Chris Adams. Oh, okay. Um, because That's when I expected him with hair too, then. Yeah, he because it was it was that weird time where I remember like Hart was advising Adams, but Adams hadn't Adams hadn't actually turned heel officially yet. Yeah, that's a great slow burn. But yeah, he's it's I remember he had hair, and I was like because again I hadn't really been seeing Gary Hart that long. I mean, you know, we start watching in like '85. In the middle of the of the feud with Chris and Gino, yeah. So, you know, and Hart's not even with them then. You know, Hart's been relegated to like managing the Misfit teams because I think at that point it was like Gang Tim Brooks and Mark Lewin. They were like the six man champions for a while, right? Which is I guess because Adams and Hernandez because. Jake had left, so they didn't have a third guy anymore. Right. So I guess the the six man sort of nebulously floated around, like I guess the mid card. You know, like they would, you know, they would fight like Iceman Parsons, Brian Adias, and whoever, like I guess Mike. Steve Simpson, yeah. Yeah, or like whoever the random. Yeah, like whoever the random other baby. I know, because I guess David would have been gone by then. So. But, but yeah, there's it's it's funny to like what like look at the bottom of the card results in world class because it's like such a small crew. It's right. you know you wonder who are going to be like the opening match baby faces and you know like sometimes they would borrow guys from especially by that point when they were working with Watts. So yeah. you know you would you know, like you would occasionally see like. Here's Terry Taylor in world class for no reason for a week, or here's like 
I think the mid like one of the first matches the Midnight Express had, I think in in World Class is like this random team against like Brad Armstrong and Terry Taylor, because right. they were just like because I think it may have been like in Tulsa, so it was kind of like, well we got extra guys, why don't you? And again, on paper the Midnight Express versus Brad Armstrong and Terry Taylor is a good match, you know, in like early 1985. But anyway, so that's my love of the Eddie Gilbert Russian flag burial match. I guess I should, since I've said it a couple times without giving the answer. You, I don't know if you know this, if we've talked about this before, or you can guess. If this was my number two favorite angle of all time, do you either know or have a guess what my number one is? If if you uh, if we haven't discussed it before. Oh, you're putting me on the spot. I feel like I should know this. Have you said it on the podcast and I just can't I, remember it? I, I may have discussed it at some point. It's I realize this is now like seven years of the podcast, so it's entirely possible I may have discussed it before. Is it Memphis? Is it Jerry Lawler and Andy Kaufman? Is it Jerry Lawler and Austin Idol? No, although if I... I would say, if I actually ranked everything, I would probably put in my top five or top ten uh, something that you talked about on your show not too long ago. The Bill and Buddy, Jeff Jarrett, Jerry Jarrett, Jerry Lawler on the phone angle. Yeah, Dutch Mantel, and then that was a great angle. Yeah. And that seemed to be the last time they really popped that territory. You know, compared to what Bill Watts is trying to do in 86 in, in UWF, and they actually go back to their territory and do it for a little while. And I think I'm I'm sure I think Dutch has said this on his show. I think like the the famous like 27 falls count tag match I think is like the last legit sell out of the mid mid south coliseum that Memphis had. That's that's what my understanding was too, and you know we were trying to figure out really is it not a sellout when Austin Idol and Jerry Lawler fight in the cage, but we don't think it was right. I mean we think that the the tag team match in '86 is the last sellout. I get you know it's a kind of thing where if you know that Lawler Idol match could have drawn ten thousand, which was really good for 1987, but that's technically not a sellout. A sellout, yeah. No, I mean, no. of course, if you had told people beforehand, hey, by the way, Jerry Lawler's going to lose to get his head shaved, you would have probably had a sellout. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, if, you're, if you're going to see Lawler wrestle in a hair versus hair match, I mean, 99.9% of the time, you kind of know what's going to happen. Right. Now, now it's, true. You I don't mean, know that the is, is hanging out under the ring with a pee bucket. I mean, it's possible you think, okay, Austin Idol may not be the one losing his hair. They might do a weird thing where they shave Paulie's head instead. I mean, right. you know, we've seen bait and switches like that before. Pauline Idol. Right, okay. So it is It is not Memphis. So is it? Is it the Midnight Express and Baby Doll? No, but you're close. Oh. Okay, I don't know. It is the debut of the original Midnight Express on TBS. Oh, wow. Because, one, it was unexpected. 
Yeah. Two, you get you cement the Midnight Express babyface turn. You get the epic blade job that Coronet does. Again, you know, by by this point it's '88. I kind of know what's going on. You see the guy wearing the white suit. Something bad's going to happen. But you may not necessarily expect it for the Midnight Express. No, the the favorite part about the whole thing, and the fact that it's the Midnight Express and Cornet and everything, but it's it's because they break this angle breaks continuity, mm. which didn't always happen then, because the whole because for people who don't remember the the whole genesis of the angle, so the Midnight Express have just lost the World Tag Team titles to the Road Warriors when they got beaten, like, basically in a squash. And the Road Warriors kind of... That's sort of the beginning of the Road Warriors' heel turn. And... The Midnight Express come out on TV, and either Bobby or Stan is injured, so it's a singles match. And... So, like, one of them is, like, they're in a sling or whatever, so, like, you know, Bobby's wrestling like Mike Jackson or somebody. And then all of a sudden, they're on the air, and Coronet's doing commentary with Ross while this match is going on. They go, um, this is kind of kind of unusual, but uh, Jim, there's a phone call for you. <laughs> and he's like, we're in the middle of this match. And they're like, yeah, we know, but they really want to talk to you. And so, he's, so he starts doing like a Bob Newhart bit. Hello, who is this? I thought it was you, you stinking piece of trash. It's like... Stop bothering me, blah, 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 blah. And then he hangs up the phone. And Ross is like, who was that? He's like, never mind. And then, like, five seconds later, you know, Cornette goes, Jesus Christ, which is, again, something you don't do on TBS. And, like, all, there's Conjury and Randy Rose and Polly Dangerously. And Jim Ross says the immortal line you know, it's the... I don't know if he says original. He's like, it's the Midnight Express. They don't even work here. Right. And then they go in the ring. So, again, it's two-on-one because either Bobby or Stan is injured on the on the floor. And I think they, like, ram him into the post or whatever. And then Dangerously cracks Coronet over the head with the phone. And Coronet busts a gusher. And it's like, we had what should have been at least you know, an interesting feud for six months or whatever. Little did we know, because this is also right after TBS starts. Speaking of feuds that get cut off and never happen. Yeah, um, you know, Jim, this is because while while this is going on, Dusty gets fired for doing the Road Warrior spike angle, and then... Jim Crockett is put in as interim booker, and Jim Ross or uh, Jim Crockett is interim booker, and Jim Raw Jim Crockett doesn't like Randy Rose, <laughs> so like this few get it, gets its legs cut out from under it. They go to the pay per view I think in February where there's a loser leave town match. Everybody thinks it's going to be Randy Rose, and it turns out Condry leaves. So <laughs> so then it's like. This feud really isn't the same without Dennis. Right. It's like, you know, Bobby and Stan have no history with Randy Rose that 
presumably we know of. We just know it's the original Midnight Express. Me, you know, again, I didn't realize at this point that Condry and Randy Rose had been the Midnight Express in Continental or in Southeastern, along with Norval. You know, I didn't know any of this then, in like 1988. So it's obviously the whole Condry left the Midnight, you know, the storyline. Well, I guess in real life too, Condry leaves in the middle of the night, doesn't show up, and there's no Midnight Express, you know, and then they find Stan. But, you know, the angle's not the same. Even if you have Coronet and Paul E. doing the thing. <coughs> and again, how effective can Coronet be as a babyface manager? I guess it's okay for him to cheat if it's against Dangerously. But, you know, then that peers out, and then Randy Rose is just there for a while not doing anything. And then eventually leaves, then it, you know, the Midnight Express at least, you know, kind of wander aimlessly, then get stuck into a, you know, get stuck in a feud with the dynamic dudes, which at least gives us that great angle at the Clash. But, you know, it's just the, you know, that was almost like, that high point was like almost the beginning of the end for the Midnight Express and WCW. Yeah, for sure. For sure. It is a good angle, though. But, um, they, you know, as we said, the theme of this episode, <laughs> great angles that went nowhere. But, you know, but to me, it's always like I love, again, because this fits in with, like, being, like, a comic book nerd and a sci-fi nerd. It's like I love angles that, like, tease or break continuity or play off the past. You know, we talked about the Gilbert thing is multi-layered and has this other practice. You know, one thing that we didn't talk about in the Gilbert feud that's on that YouTube clip is how Tommy Gilbert is there in the UWF as a manager, or as a referee, and then is embarrassed by Eddie and wants to quit, and Watts said, no, you're a good referee, it's your son's fault, I'm going to beat up your son, but I don't want to fire you as a referee because you're good. Right. Yeah, he basically disowns his son and says, well, you know, you know, you know sometimes when your kid's messing up and you don't like it. And it's funny because, you know, like a year or so later, we get the great heel Gilbert family angle in Memphis, including, you know, the Tommy Gilbert-Eddie Marlin feud between, you know, two guys in their 50s. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. there's that, even, even, you know, I'm sure something is high on your Mid-South list, on everybody's list, I guess, the, like, the DiBiase-Dick Murdoch angle. You know, there's like that's multi-layered with like years worth of stuff. That yeah. again, not everybody. You know, you, again, if you were like a loyal Mid South watcher, you know, for years, you also know about the relationship between DiBiase and Murdoch, which goes back, you know, back into the 70s. Yeah, it's kind of like the same as, you know, when the Freebirds pile drove DiBiase. You know, that's playing off this, like, 1981 angle that's in even in a different territory. You know, if I guess if the world would have been a different place, Watch would have actually, like, gotten that clip from Georgia TV to show on his show. But, you know, you know. But only had recorded over that clip. So. Right. Yeah, yeah, nobody who, you know, somebody in the, you know, some trader, some tape trader had it, but it hadn't made its way onto the Internet because there was no Internet yet. Right. But yeah, but I mean, mid. I mean, you know, I guess you know, mid south is 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 such a great territory for angles, especially probably once Dundee gets there and it becomes a lot more Memphisized. 
you know, the cake angle, hanging Terry Taylor. Then we get to the UWF years, the ones we're talking about. You know, and then we get, again, that stuff with Dick Slater and Buzz Sawyer. There's just a lot of really great booking in, like, in that, probably before Ken Mantell comes in. Probably in that time when it, when it probably is, like, Taylor booking some of it, Gilbert booking some of it, Watts booking some of it. You know, you know Ole Anderson said something so interesting in his book about how he liked to do everything himself, but Bill Watts liked to sit at a table with two or three guys and say, here's where we're going, how do we get there? So if you can figure out who the two or three guys are sitting with Bill Watts at any given time, you know, and you can usually do that, right? Because if Eddie Gilbert is doing a portrait angle and Jake Roberts is in the main events with Humongous and, you know, Lord Humperdinck and and um, Dick Slater is coming on the scene and he's won all the titles, <laughs> then you know who the guys are at the table, right? Yeah, it's that kind of thing that you don't know as a kid watching, but when you watch back in hindsight, you're like, I can pretty much tell who the booker is based on who's getting pushed and who has titles and whatnot. If if Ernie Ladd has just turned face and Buck Robley is back, then we know who's got Bill Watts' ear. But, you know, other than that... If, so, if somebody's coming out of a box... <laughs> well... Greg, I want to thank you very much for doing this, especially on short notice. So, yeah, uh, we, we yeah, we've I mentioned. A, I have a Del Marva question for you. Okay. So we spent like six hours driving through the Del Marva to get to do like what most people do, which is to get someplace else, right? And uh, but why in Delaware? Like it's a it's a vertical. I mean it's a up and down state, right? So it's like, why are the beaches in the southern end? It's just the way it is. I blame the Philadelphia River. <laughs> okay. I mean... Like, so you get into Delaware and you're like, okay, so anywhere in Delaware is going to be beach, right? It's all ocean, but then it's like beaches, 100 miles. And you're I, like, why is all in the southern end? I mean, I think a lot of it probably is like the port of Wilmington probably takes up, you know, a good however many miles of the, like the tip of the, you know, at the very top. So there's yeah. like, there's like, there's just no beaches there. It may just be, you know, like as you just far enough South for beaches, it's like, oddly enough, it's like, I know there are beaches on the Potomac, which sounds strange, but like, I mean, I worked for, when I worked for MCW, they did a wrestling show at some bar that's like on the beach on the Potomac, like in Southern Maryland. And it was so hot that day. Guys did not want to bump out of the, they did not want to leave the ring. Cause they did not want to one. They didn't want to bump on the ring. Cause of how hot the ring was. And they didn't want to go outside. Cause they didn't want to bump on the sand. Cause the ring was set up basically on the beach. Yeah. And yeah, guys ended up you know, coming, and then you don't want to come back in the ring with sand on. It was just, it was like again, you know, it was a sold show. It was a very short, probably show, but it was, it was very, very hot that day. It was in the summer, and, but yeah, so there's, it's funny when I lived in Virginia Beach, um, I knew a bunch of people that I was friends with who were New Yorkers or from Northern Jersey, and I was like why are there so many New Yorkers here? 
And my friend, my friend said, because when you're driving south, it's the first place that has different weather than the northeast. Yeah. Which is kind of true. And it was certainly borne out by the way people drove in the snow down there. We want real spring breaks weather. We don't want our uh, New York weather where it could still be snowing. Well, you know, my family doesn't like driving through Delaware with me because every time we get to Dover, I have to tell them how I wrestled at the fairgrounds uh, for Jerry Gray in 1997. And they're like, yes, we know. I made the mistake today. I was, I had to go below the canal for something. And I started seeing all these signs that said, welcome race fans. And I'm like, oh, no. Did I come down? I think it's actually next weekend. But I was like, did I make the mistake? I guess because the traffic would have been bumper to bumper trying to get south if it, was, if it was actually race day. Yeah. But it's like, yeah, that's one of those things. I sort of learned that in Richmond, too. It's like, never, don't go like within like 30 miles whenever there's a race just because like, that sudden, like Dover suddenly becomes like the most popular city in Delaware that day. Oh my God! I just want to get to North Carolina, y'all. Can you, you know, <laughs> like, can Delaware be over yet? Well, well, unless you want to stop and buy stuff because there's no sales tax. Yeah, I'm good. That's, I mean, that used to be the, for the longest time when I was a kid, and even probably within the last ten years, the Delaware signs. On the when you crossed the border, said, "Welcome to Delaware, home of tax-free shopping." It's like <laughs> we don't. It's like we de, we have unless you're a corporation. If you're just a regular person, we don't have very much to offer you in this, except tax-free shopping. Because I worked at Borders, at, in Christiana, which is like right off 95. Yeah. Oh yeah. And we. This is back when you still people still wrote checks. I could easily see seven different states' driver's licenses in one day working there. Which, admittedly, you're going to automatically see, like, four anyway. Like, you're right. going to see Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, and Jersey anyway. Yeah. But but you would, easily, you would almost every day see a New York license or a New England state license or Virginia just because, you know, you, you have to get off somewhere – Here's this big mall. Here's the mm-hmm. bookstore. We need to kill an hour and eat lunch or whatever. Yeah. So that used to be the the uh, the main reason to like go to Delaware was. Be, I mean, I certainly am guilty of that. It's like, I mean, when I lived in Maryland, it's like, okay, I'm going to buy. Let's. I mean, since I did this not too long ago, like I'm going to buy thousand dollar TV do I go to Bel do I go to Best Buy in Bel Air and buy a thousand dollar TV and pay five percent sales tax which takes me a half an hour to get to or do I drive a half an hour to Newark and go to the, go to the same Best Buy in Newark and pay a thousand dollars to pay no sales tax right you know what I mean so like it's you know like where I grew up in the country up here you know we're e- we're equidistant to everywhere in the middle of the country. Mm-hmm. It's like half an hour to Newark, half an hour to Bel Air, hour to Baltimore, hour to Philly, two hours to D.C., like three-ish hours to New York, depending on the traffic. You know, hour and a half to Harrisburg, 
So it's, you know, there are some benefits. And, of course, to me, the big benefit was since we had a rotor on our TV, we could watch Baltimore TV, Philadelphia TV, and if we were lucky, DC TV. Right. So certainly once I became a wrestling fan, I could watch both Crockett shows, both WWF shows, AWA, then when Mid-South came, and World Class, all because of our antenna. Because we, did, we didn't have cable yet. Right. So that was like the one advantage the country you're living, at least back then. So <laughs> as we were saying, uh, we've mentioned it a couple times. Tell us about the Old School Wrestling Podcast. Yeah, so, you know, about a year ago, I just got tired of – well, actually, I think after I came on your podcast last time, I was really excited to talk about all of my wrestling memories and all of my wrestling – both, you know, being in wrestling in the 90s and then being a fan of wrestling in the 80s, just, you know, going through the memory bank. And then, you know, as we did today, sort of like actually going on cage match and tracing the real matches. So I started Greg Klein's Old School Wrestling Talk, and we're coming up on the one-year anniversary. You know, it's been more than just my memories of my career, which is, I think, what I started it for. But you know, the more I get into it, the more I'm into old Houston angles and old Houston memories. And actually, I'm about to film one tomorrow if I have any voice left. Thanks, Mark. Um, where we look at and my earliest Morris Siegel, um, uh, you know, promo, um, uh, what do you call it, program. And uh, my earliest Paul Bosch program, so like two 1960s programs, or I think one 1958 program and one 1967 or 1968 program right after Paul Bosch takes over Houston. And, um, you know, the as we talk about a lot, I did a Nick Bockwinkle in Houston series, which was one of the most popular ones so far. And then I just have a lot of Houston programs. So, like, I have one right before Jack Briscoe wins the world title where he gets revenge on Dory Funk Jr. before he goes up against Harley Race. I think that was my most downloaded episode in the first year so far, talking about Dory's farm accident, ranch accident. That was one of my questions, not being a Texan. If you're in Texas, is it automatically a ranch or is there some dividing line between what's a farm and what's a ranch? You know, we lived in that. We both grew up in the mid-Atlantic, so they're all farms. There's no ranches that I know of. But uh, I think out in Texas, you have to have a ranch accident instead. My question so, is, yeah. was 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 Dory, did Dory Funk Sr. have the single cross ranch? <laughs> right. That that uh, and what did what did Junior, you know? Junior had the boring cross ranch. He had the cross to bear ranch. You know, he, he had a farm accident so that we didn't have to. And on that happy note, I have brought the crowd to a silence. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, ladies and gentlemen. No, it's, it's funny. One of the things that like I've learned over the years and it's sort of been accentuated with your podcast is I never realized that how much of a real world champion the AWA champion actually was. Yeah, that was like, my, that, when that I, was my intention. When I grew up, 
I mean, again, only reading the magazines. And again, this is also the mid-80s, so kind of past the peak. To me, it looked like, okay, the NWA champion goes to all these other places. The WF champion obviously only goes to the WF. But it was like, the AWA champion, okay, he wrestles in the AWA. They now have these shows with the NWA, so they they don't usually cross-pollinate. They're usually just their own matches on the card. And, you know, and I know he wrestles in Japan. But, like, I did not realize then, you know, like, how long Jerry, like, how long ago Jerry Jarrett was using the AWA champion. I didn't know, like, the AWA champion went to Continental. I did not know the AWA champion went to Houston. You know, it was right. like, and, and all these other places, it was just, I just assumed the AWA was just, it was like a one uh, a one company champion. Yeah. It wasn't he's until going to Calgary. He's going to, you know, Toronto occasionally. He's going just all over the place, really. But yeah, I mean, I'm definitely one of those people. I mean, obviously my friend Matt is, you know, one of the leading Nick Bockwinkle cheerleaders on the internet, but it's like, I never, you know, and I knew Bockwinkle was good. You know, but it wasn't until, like, this renaissance, you know, like in the last four or five years where we started like, getting all of this footage, a lot of it, the Houston, you know, the Houston stuff started showing up. Because yeah. a lot of the places, you know, we don't have film when he used to do whatever. It's like, you know, we've got some of his stuff from Memphis, but not a lot, you know, and some of the other places... But, you know, I mean, I'm certainly probably in the camp now where, if, you know, you were to say, would you rather have Bockwinkle or Flair? You know, I'm probably now in the – it's, you know, Bockwinkle has gone up in the last few years and Flair has gone down in the last few years. Then, like, I probably would be, like, in the Bockwinkle camp at this point. Yeah, you'd have to – you might have to go year by year. And say, okay, you know, maybe you'd rather have Flair in '85, but maybe you'd rather have Bockwinkle in '81. And then, obviously, you know, Bockwinkle in the late '70s, he really, literally does replace Harley Race in a lot of cities, you know, including Houston, as we've talked about. So, yeah, it's the kind of thing. And you know, it's like there's all, you know, it's like almost any time we find more mid to late period Bachwinkle flitches, we're probably not going to get, you know, I, I think there's like, what, like one or two matches from Chicago when he was like young Nick Bachwinkle right. that, are, that are out there that are just sort of more curiosities than anything else. It's like, you know, you wonder just how much like AWA footage is in the vault in Stanford that other than, you know, Vern always showing, like, the same few matches every year on Matt Classics on AWA TV, which usually was him beating Bachwinkle. Right. But it's, I remember somebody, I don't know if it was you or somebody else, when they were talking about how, like, on the on the first, oh, it might have been Crispy, was saying how on the first AWA show on ESPN, they show Vern beating Bachwinkle in his retirement match. Yeah. It's like, do you really need to be putting yourself over at this point? <laughs> it's, no, at, at the expense of your champion, right? Well, um, you know, it probably would have been Martell then. 
but okay. but still somebody that's you know an active competitor. Yeah. Yeah, this is them like showing the '81 match in 1985 on ESPN. Oh, okay. I didn't realize it was that late that they got on ESPN. Yeah, it was. It was. I want to say like I have to look it up, but it's like mid '85, something gotcha. like that. It's the kind of thing, you know. You, I mean, a bunch of people have talked about this over the years, but you know, there were like three or four people who were presumably vying to be to get in the ESPN slot. I mean, Ron Fuller says, you know, they were they were up for it, especially because he had sponsors already lined up. Right. But everyone says basically they chose the AWA because they had Sergeant Slaughter and they knew who he was. <laughs> right. <laughs> Again, the history of wrestling is based on is all based on television. All based on people <coughs> that didn't know what they were doing or didn't like it. Yeah. And said, "I don't care if this kid, you know, I don't know if you would have had a program director at Channel 5 come in and say, "I don't like wrestling. I don't care if this gets a 75 share, we're going to cancel it." I don't think anybody would be that stupid. But, you know, certainly, you know, you're, you know, it's full of people like, you know, Jim Hurd or, you know, the AOL guys who just said, we don't want wrestling on our TV. <clears throat> we don't care how much money it's making. We don't want it. Mm. But that's the thing. So, yeah, so there's the podcast. Um, I know you've teased that you may have a new book coming at the end of the year. I don't know if you want to. Yeah, I'm actually going to, um, you know, my first novel, The Paper Tigers, came out last year or about 18 months ago, which was, I think, the last time I was on your show. And at the end of this year, I'm actually going to come out with a two play set of my first two plays. Uh, one is called Sunset Painting and the other is called The Sun. So knock on wood, that'll be out come fall. Cool, and uh, we have no time for baseball chat. But how are things going? Uh, how are things going in Cooperstown these days? Things are good, you know. Just I have six jobs and three of them pay, so that is good. And I actually, um, I'm working on a movie. It's called A Cooperstown Christmas. We're in what they would call in the business in development. So that is a fancy way of saying we're raising money. <laughs> so if anybody wants to invest. We do have the legal, you know, mumbo-jumbo. You can reach out to me on that. Um, and, you know, like I said, just uh, running a film commission, doing a sports blog in a era that exists sort of post-local newspapers and local newspaper coverage. And, uh, you know, just kind of doing the soccer dad stuff post-high uh, school soccer. So we'll see what happens with that as well. But it's it's been a lot of fun to catch up with you, Mark, and really always great to talk about Mid-South UWF, even if it is the UWF era. And we did not even talk about the uh, – um, I guess we'll, we'll throw this here at the very end. Um, one of the sheep herders passed away not that long ago. And I saw that. They were such good friends of Jerry Gray's that it made me pause for a minute, you know, like um, – yeah, it was sad. But I mean, I think we talked about this on online. I mean, I think the memory of watching that barbed wire cage match 
on UWF TV, you know, as a 16 year old is like still seared into my brain. That, yeah, that's definitely the high. I think that's one of the high points of the UWF era for sure. And again, if you want to talk about a way to make a, a pretty boy tag team, you know, impress the guys in the audience, put them in a barbed wire cage match. And this, and this, for people who haven't seen it, this isn't just like barbed wire wrapped around the ring. This is like two by fours placed up around the ring, and then the barbed wire strung around. So it's like not even a real cage. It's a cage of barbed wire, not a barbed wire cage, if that makes sense. And to see the the, the brutality that like the sheep herders and the Fantastics, and you know, we mentioned it before. You know, you throw in Terry Taylor and Jack Victory as the you know the two extras and six mans. Those that's the kind of thing, you know, I had not been watching wrestling that long, and, you know, I immediately preferred, you know, Crockett's WBF of the two things that I got to watch because it was more, quote-unquote, realistic and more violent. But then finally getting to watch Mid-South and UWF, and then, you know, a month or two after having UWF, we're seeing a barbed wire cage match on TV. It was just amazing. Yeah, that was those were the days, for sure. Definitely. So uh, I will try and put some of the clips that we have talked about from that uh, Eddie Gilbert, Bill Watts angle into the show. They may be all at once here at the end, or they may be interspersed depending on how creative I want to get. But Greg, thanks a lot. Everybody check out uh, Greg's pod when the next episode drops in a little while. Thanks everybody for listening, and we will talk to you next time. (laughs) 